In this podcast, Wayne Bruce talks to Barbara Yeo, the former chair at Monash Health. Barbara, thanks very much for your time this morning. Pleasure, Wayne. I'd like to start off by just talking about your early career, I guess, and what your first job out of university was and whether that then determined in any form the the future career that you took. I think uh, to put into context, uh, I studied current applied mathematics and theory of statistics at university. And I did that because I absolutely loved and still love to this day mathematics. And I really didn't have any idea, Wayne, of really what I wanted to do. You know, young, falling in love with mathematics, you know, life is, let's see what happens. So when I graduated, I was offered a position with the Bureau of Statistics. It was as a research officer. And I worked in a small research unit that essentially was acted uh, in consult, undertook consultancy roles in applied research. My first job I had was to work with the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons to look at the effectiveness of wearing seatbelts. So I'm probably showing my age a bit here, uh, but that was a really exciting opportunity for my very first project I worked in uh, after I graduated. And I think, you know, I really just let my career find its own way, if you like. A little bit like, you know, a stream coming down the mountainside finds its own way. It doesn't go in a straight line. Never had a career path, never had a career plan. And I've always been prepared to take a risk with my career. Uh, If something came along that appealed to me, and I think having studied mathematics, it really is about logic, about problem solving. So you're not really boxed into a particular sector or industry. And I think, you know, that in part is why I really have never had a career path. I have a slight similarity with you in the sense that when I finished my undergraduate, I my first job was with Commonwealth Rehab Service and um, and I was a research officer. Oh, okay. Doing slightly different research, but nevertheless, a bit like yourself. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, but um, eventually I, I found it. So with yourself, has there been sort of one role or a couple of roles during your career that's been, you know, maybe your favourite or you've, you know, developed a lot because you did it? You know, what, what's been the most meaningful jobs or companies that you worked with? Probably say I don't have a favourite role. I think uh, all those roles have contributed, although I would say working in the health sector, I think really gives me a very strong sense of purpose. But what really impacted me was my bosses and the people I work for. My first job at the Bureau of Statistics, my boss was a retired ex-wing commander from the Australian Air Force. And if we go, you know, jump onto the stereotype wagon, then you say, oh, wow, you know, chain of control, you know, command and control type of leader. Wayne, he was the opposite. He was a wonderful, inspiring leader. He encouraged me, he supported me, he didn't look over my shoulder, he had an open door. And I think most of all, I remember him for his kindness and generosity. And I have to say, I've been lucky in my career, particularly my early and mid-career, Wayne, because, and they were men who were my bosses, 
I think, very much the same leadership styles. And they weren't men who had this notion of a glass ceiling. So I think they really, I think, gave me the confidence to pursue my career interests through life. When did you first go onto a board as a director? I can't remember exactly when, but uh, it, it would have been probably in probably about over more than 30 years, I think. I was still young. I was in a CEO role. I was CEO, Chief Executive Officer of what was then uh, Big Thin, which is now the Treasury Corporation of Victoria. And it's a funny story because you probably asked me, well, how did you get the role, Barbara? Wayne, I have no idea. I was in my office late one afternoon and my secretary came in and this large envelope had been couriered to my office. It was addressed to me, marked confidential and from La Trobe University. And I said to my secretary, I have nothing to do with La Trobe University. This has clearly been a mistake. Mm. You need to ring them and courier the documents back. She came back to my office and said, no, Barbara, there's no mistake. These are your meeting papers for your first council meeting uh, next week. You've been appointed to La Trobe University Council. Oh, wow. And you didn't even know. I didn't even know. So clearly miscommunications along the way. And what I still don't know to this day, Wayne, is who closed and who supported my appointment on La Trobe University Council. I bet you'd like to, to thank them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. But obviously in the background there. And I think that's why your reputation is so important. Mm. You know, it's amazing uh, how many uh, people you know of, even if you haven't met them, through your connections and, and networks. So as you said, you know, you, you studied the efficacy of seatbelts in cars, so you've seen a bit, and being a woman, particularly be interested in how you think the world has changed from a diversity point of view since you started working until now and do you think it's where it should be yet or but if not, do you think it's sort of, you know, getting there? Well, I think when I first started out, I'm not sure that there really was, you know, we had this, what we call this skills matrix now, you know, which people talk about. And it is uh, primarily about uh, both your education, educational diversity and work experience diversity. Uh, we do, I think, have made progress, uh, clearly progress uh, in terms of gender, but only in respect of women on boards. But we put the two words together, diversity and inclusiveness. And my view is they don't necessarily are the one thing or automatically come together. If you've got, you know, a diverse board, I think it's erroneous to believe you've got an inclusive board. So in terms of diversity, I think my reading of the research is telling me that cognitive diversity is perhaps the more powerful, stronger influence in terms of diversity of thinking on the board. You know, the cognitive thinking, diversity, how you think about a problem, as you know, how you think about your approach, what your approach is to solving an issue. So 
I don't think we really talk about, think about cognitive diversity. I, I think we probably make assumptions about if you're a lawyer, you'd, your cognitive strength would be X, Y or Z rather than thinking more deeply about it. So I do think there's a bit of a risk in terms of having a bit of a simple tick the box approach to diversity. You know, we've now ticked the gender box that is a bit of a concern for me, but I think the one that I really think we've got a lot more work to do and to think about is being inclusive. For to me, that's about our biases as individual directors, both our conscious and our unconscious conscious biases. And, you know, it's hard work. It's really hard work to, first of all, try and identify, recognise, understand where your biases may come from and work hard to leave them outside the boardroom. Because if you don't do that, then, of course, you're not going to get the benefits of cognitive diversity and diversity of information. But I do think one of the things, conversations that is happening, Wayne, as a result of the Financial Royal Commission is a sense of purpose. And I do think that both collectively and as individual directors, having a strong sense of purpose is very important in terms of going down the path of understanding and practising inclusive behaviours in the boardroom. Yeah, Barbara, do you, if you know someone, I guess you can to some degree at least assess would they bring cognitive diversity to the board, but how do you measure that if you don't? Like, how do you measure that? Be interested to know. I think that really is the challenge as to how you would put that in practice. I've certainly done a workshop on cognitive diversity and it helped me to discover what my strengths and weaknesses were mm. in that space. I think it is challenging, but I think we probably have to have some discussion about how we can, to some extent, try and reflect cognitive diversity I know you've been chair of boards, so I don't know with, with any of the boards you've been a chair of, whether you've had any processes to try and select new members using references or tools or knowledge of them, whatever it In might be. In terms of cognitive diversity, I'd have to very honestly say no. That's interesting. I think it's been, you know, reversion to the, the aspects relating particularly to work experience and education. You know, it's not to say that Cognitive diversity, I don't believe, is mutually exclusive from the others. No. They all come together, but perhaps, you know, just a bit more thinking about, well, am I one of these people that want to always ask what is the evidence in terms of coming to a solution rather than not having the strength of saying, well, what's the people mm. impact? As you say, they're not mutually exclusive, but one doesn't necessarily follow the other. Yes, and I think we've got a lot to learn and understand in that space. You've been on boards in varying sectors, so obviously there would be some similarities in terms of the responsibilities. Are there any differences caused by industry sector or is it pretty much the same? I would say there are two differences in my view between our government sector boards and the private sector. I think the very first difference 
is balance sheet management. Government boards, you really don't have accountability for balance sheet management. You've got, uh, you know, essentially constraints in terms of your funding, your funding models, but there is that dependency on government. And I think what it does, in my view, is it takes some edge of driving accountability performance for performance on government boards. The other, the other difference I would highlight, Wayne, would be shareholders. When you're on a government board, you are, are very conscious of who your shareholder is. And, you know, it manifests itself all the time through policies and government policy, government strategy. Again, the funding constraints, you know, are always present there in the boardroom, so to speak. And I think one of the things that that does to some extent is restrains, if you like, constrains innovative thinking on government boards because you are you have to work within that context of government policy and government strategy. One of the obviously key responsibilities you have being on a board is to, you know, appoint new chief executives and we've actually helped you do that once ourselves several years ago. But when you were looking for, let's say, a CEO, what were the key things you were looking for? I mean, you'd obviously be looking for a relevant experience set and probably relevant qualifications and things like that. But beyond that, what was it about the person, their culture fit that was important to you? Okay, so I suppose, Wayne, again, uh, I'm going to show my cognitive biases here or my unconscious biases. I think, first of all, to me, it's very important in terms of being an inclusive leader. It's not all about me. Even in an interview, I feel it's all about me. Then I would be asking myself, is this person really just driven by their ego? Are they a hero leader? Are they uh, very much a control freak? Are they uh, perhaps charismatic, but there's not a lot of substance beneath that charisma? So I think that's probably the biggest red flag I have in interviewing for a leader. I'd also like to understand how they, their self-awareness about the, how they impact others. I think that's very important. I think the last thing I'd say is I love to come out of an interview just feeling so energised mm. and excited about a candidate. And I think that is important because I think if they can make me feel that way, it's important that they make staff feel that way. It's important that they are able to effectively engage with stakeholders and make them also feel energised about the purpose and the vision, et cetera, of the organisation. If you think back to your earlier career, perhaps, you know, when you're in your 20s or your 30s, what sage advice would you like to have received from someone and maybe you did, and it sounds like you did, from the wing commander, for example, the former Air Force person. But So what would be your sage advice for younger people trying to build a good career? I think, first of all, self-reflection is terribly important. And I think you need to build your self-awareness. I'd say probably, Wayne, I think that I was something that 
I've only really, I think, come to later in my career rather than very early. When you're very enthusiastic and you see things, you know, with a bright future. But I think self-reflection is just so important and I personally benefit a lot from self-reflection, you know, after a board meeting, whatever, what went right, what went wrong, what have I learned from that, what can I learn from that. A couple of other things I'd say don't leave kindness and generosity outside the door. It does matter. I think you need to have courage. I think you need to have courage for two reasons. You need, if you're really going to grow and develop both personally and professionally, you need to step outside your comfort zone. You need courage to take risks with your career. But uh, more importantly, you need moral courage to make decisions as a leader. Because when you're a leader, as you know, Wayne, you don't have perfect information. If you're a leader and making uh, decisions on based on perfect information, then you shouldn't be making those decisions. You should be delegating them. I think... The one for the future, I suspect, and I think you will probably have a view on this, is to have an open and agile mind. I don't think any of us could say we we know what the future is going to look like at this point in time with the pandemic, COVID-19. We don't even know whether we're really going to come out of it, how we're really going to come out of it, and, you know, what transition looks like. So I think that... Uh, is going to be strength that we're going to need more and more in our leaders so that they are very open in their thinking, they're very agile in the way they process information and make decisions.